You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with host Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. That's me. So direct primary care, also known as digital first care, which includes virtual care as a branch of it, eliminates burnout, waste, fraud, abusive overtesting and overtreatment, and shaves employer costs by somewhere between 30 and 60%, and depending on its deployment, with direct contracting as a center focus of it all. Not to mention that patients finally get off the factory medicine treadmill with visits that can be now 60 to 90 minutes, which makes the docs happy, and they get near immediate access to their provider, or at least a provider. And that means direct deals with employers, with surgeons, imaging centers, labs, local pharmacy and grocery chains, and primary care, of course, which is at its best iteration, leading much of the steerage, but the best TPAs can also lead it into these lower cost partners. So everybody wins, the employer, the doc, consumers, costs, population health. Some say the triple aim is impossible, but I see this as the quintuple aim and it's achieved every day by over 15 million patients and about 5,000 doctors. So I live in a future where everyone wins. You finally get it when I keep saying that over and over again. I'm super excited to introduce you to Zev Newworth, who is a doctor who serves as the Chief of Clinical Innovation and Transformation in Strategic Services at Atrium Health, which has 70,000 employees and used to be known as the Carolinas Health System with over 10 billion in revenues. He wrote a book that sort of woke me up to what consumerism can be in healthcare called Reframing Healthcare, a roadmap for creating disruptive change. And the book holds an average five-star rating in Amazon, and I would highly recommend it. So, Zeb, welcome to the show. Ron, thank you so much. Hey, Zeb, do you agree with me that we can achieve not only the triple aim, but more with some of these new models that are out there? Absolutely. There's no question about it. I sat on a panel with a guy, and he said triple aim is impossible. And when I said that not only is it quadruple aim, but quintuple aim achieved, he looked at me like I was crazy. But... Um, you know, this model wasn't as pervasive as it was maybe even a year ago. Yeah, I mean, Ron, you know, first of all, I, I think the person who said it's impossible is partially true. It's impossible if you keep on doing the same things you're doing and just try to do it better. Uh, and if you're still in the same frame mind, uh, you know, yes, then it's impossible. But if you're, if you're, you know, reframing, uh, if you're thinking about it differently and coming at about it, at, at it differently, we know it works. And in, in fact, I've been studying this for the last few years and have been like you looking at uh, exceptions to the rule where we're actually seeing uh, phenomenally different outcomes. When you have 70,000 employees, um, a lot of them physicians, what experiments can you run on things like direct primary care to see if it works? Are you, are you toying with different ideas to see what uh, is giving value to the, uh, not only the patients, but the providers? Yeah, I think you know, in a in a large in large healthcare systems, there's um, you know, I think there are variations on that theme. Um, so we, 
are working with, you know, it, it comes down to this. I mean, I think, you know, there's the clinical care model, which I think is needs to be fundamentally reframed, and particularly in primary care. Uh, and there are, uh, you know, again, rampant examples of that. And, and I think it's not so much that I think it's, you know, it should change or I think it can change. Uh, it is changing. Um, and, you know, we're seeing radically different models of care being created. And yes, we're participating in, in, in some of those and plan to much, much more in the coming months and, and years. I, I think the other part of it is uh, the business model. And so, you know, a lot of innovation and transformation, uh, great ideas, even great execution, but not a great business model. And so, uh, so we are also uh, participating in, in different sort of business or payment models as well. And it's really marrying those two together that is really critically important. And I think, you know, with direct primary care, when you're dealing with smaller practices, it, in some ways they're more nimble, you know, much, much easier to, uh, steer those small boats when you're talking, as you mentioned before, with large healthcare systems where you have uh, thousands of providers and tens of thousands of employees uh, and uh, literally hundreds, if not millions of patients. It's a larger ship and you have to think about uh, steering it uh, in a different way. Where do you get your, um, I'm not going to say energy, where do you get your ideas from to innovate and create new ideas for primary care? In your system, what what gives you? Do you get ideas from like CVS and Walgreens, or from other competitors out there that are hospitals, or where where are you getting your inspiration from? You know, it, I think it's like uh, that's a great question. I think it's it's like all uh, high performers in 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 any uh, venue, whether it's the arts or in sports. What I've heard from people who are at the top is that they're always looking to the left and the right. They're always looking to see what others are doing, and you have a vision. And you have a mission, but um, you you know what was it Picasso said that uh, the really top people don't borrow; they actually just steal. And so yeah, so we we steal ideas from everywhere and bits and pieces, and then we you know we curate and put it together. And um, you know I think the other part of it too is you're seeing in the market uh, a, a lot of partnering going on. So it's you know it used to be that you either you know built it yourself, which is predominantly what large healthcare systems did, you know, it's, it's sort of that motto, it had to be built here. And that's sort of a legacy uh, idea. Um, and, and then, you know, and then you saw the other only option was to buy things and purchase them. But I think increasingly what you're seeing is, is really very, very creative partnerships where uh, uh, people are bringing assets together to develop ecosystems of care. Um, and uh, either just bringing them together, but then co-developing them. And, and really it's about curating um, and then combining and then coordinating uh, these into a, into delivery systems that again are viable uh, financially and um, and most importantly obviously make sense to and the other factor too is they 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 have to be doable for providers and and their staff. I uh, can, I'm going to ask you for an example of what you just described. But before, what are you most proud of all the innovative uh, strategies you've brought to primary care in the last several years since you've had this job? Oh, my God. Uh, that's a tough question. Um, I, I, it would be so much easier to answer the question, like, you know, how many mistakes did you make? Um, and tell us about those. Uh, there's a couple of 
fundamental reframes that I'm very, very proud of. And I, I wouldn't I wouldn't take credit for them. I would just because uh, very much like I just said to you, I, I don't know that I come up with ideas so much as I, I really recognize great ideas and uh, great people. And uh, then I just listen to them and try to share their thoughts with my colleagues. And so I would say that, you know, the thing I'm most, most proud may not be the word, but excited about and enthusiastic about and supportive of is uh, the recognition of, of the so-called social determinants of health that we in the medical field have been trained and, and focus and get paid for uh, doing clinical work. And, you know, and this is medications and surgeries and, and diagnostics and things like that. And But we know from the literature, and this has been known for quite some time, but validated over and over again, that the vast majority of health outcomes have, uh, you know, more to do with the psychosocial aspects of people's lives. So, you know, do, do they have education? Um, and we know we know that is such a huge uh, part of it. Uh, do do they live in safe neighborhoods? Do they have safe housing? Uh, you know, do, can they get food uh, and and buy healthy foods or not? Uh, you know, these these uh, social do they have transportation? Are they upwardly mobile? These are really the factors that uh, determine so much of health. And I think that what what I'm so excited and I, and I would say actually proud of my organization is uh, we've recognized this in a, in a tremendous way. And we've been working on this for a while, for years, I would say, but it's really gotten to the point where it is a major part of our strategy, um, recognizing the importance of the social determinants of health and, uh, and more than just recognizing it, um, actually making it a major part of our strategy and taking action that I would say is uh, on a scale that is unprecedented uh, for our organization and maybe uh, unprecedented even on a national scale. And so uh, th that is that is one. And I think part and parcel of that is also the recognition of of the racial inequities and disparities in, in care as well as in health outcomes. And again, we've uh, recognized that, you know, I think in large part due to what's going on in our society right now, but have made a major commitment uh, to doing something about it. And when I say major commitment, I mean, we have now task forces that are focused uh, specifically on this area. We are putting together uh, education and training modules. It's, uh, I've never seen anything like it. And again, you use the word proud. I, I will say I'm super, super proud to be part of an organization, Atrium Health, that is focused on the social determinants of health, that is focused on doing something about racial inequities and, and disparities in, in healthcare and in health in general. I, I would say that's probably the number one thing I'm proud of. I can't take credit for it, but I am part of it and, and proud to be. Um, you can't talk about social determinants of health and not talk about diabetes, uh, type two especially. Um, is there anything that, or any experiments or innovations you're trying that allow you to reverse diabetes or at least maintain um, the A1C levels? And that's been, you know, I will always say this over the last, as, as everyone's uh, aware of, sadly, uh, we've been in a pandemic for the last year or so. And so every other agenda we've had has been thrown off course. And so we've been very, very focused on on taking care of, uh, you know, of folks, of people in our community. Um, and we serve a large, large community, well over uh, a million 
patients that come to us and a, and a population which is multiple that size. So we've been just immersed in just taking care of uh, folks who have been sick with COVID and, and now, of course, with vaccinations. And so th that's really been our focus. But um, we're getting back to what we were on track with before, which is exactly what you're talking about, chronic disease um, it, it is it is uh, epidemic in our country. Um, again, unprecedented prevalence of diseases like obesity and hypertension and diabetes, and continuing to to grow. And of course, the consequences are terrible in terms of strokes and heart attacks and early mortality. So, um, yes, we are absolutely focused on it. I think you know. I think where where chronic disease is moving is much more in the realm of of digital health. Um, and uh, and also really engaging people in their own care. And so the notion that, you know, in the past, if you had diabetes, uh, you would go see your doctor once every few weeks or once every few months, depending on how serious it was and, and how unstable your condition was. And the doctor would look at some numbers that you scribbled on a piece of paper in terms of your sugars in the morning and your sugars in the evening and this and that, and give you a prescription and then see you back uh, and uh, do a little bit of education. And so that, that legacy model is has got to go undergo a major sea change. And again, this is what you and I were just talking about a few minutes ago in terms of the reframing. It's, it's sure, we won't achieve triple aim if we continue to do what we did, you know, uh, and have been doing for the last 50 years. We have to completely reframe that. And so part of that is actually now uh, using remote, remote patient, what they call remote patient monitoring. So using biometric devices where we're able to actually uh, the patient or person is able to, to to see their own sugars if they have a question or concern uh, to be able to get in touch with us virtually, uh, you know, 24/7 and get feedback on that. And so we are we are uh, we've been doing virtual care for a number of years now, actually probably for a decade, uh, in 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 multiple ways. Uh, and so I I'm, I am proud of that and our leadership that had the foresight to actually start that years ago. But we're moving rapidly into the digital era and the digital health era, and I think that's going to completely overhaul, completely change care. I think it'll be so much better for people and uh, and make it so much better for providers as well. Are you a little surprised how much everything has shifted to virtual and digital health with this past year's pandemic? It seems um, the adoption rate was about one percent, and now it's a thousandfold that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, astounding. I interviewed dozens and dozens of folks around the country during the first few months of the pandemic. And literally what I heard was, to your point, um, you know, virtual, they've been doing virtual less than 5%, you know, some far less than 5% uh, of their patient visits. And literally within a matter of weeks, sometimes days, uh, flipping over into over 80 or 90% of patients, uh, you know, essentially being treated virtually. Now, granted, most of that or a lot of that was by phone. Uh, switching over to phone calls instead of in-person visits, but some of it was uh, uh, video visits as well. Doesn't that tell you that 80% of visits are unnecessary in person, that a lot can be done over the phone and by um, screen? That's a that's a great question, um, and I think it deserves uh, you know a very, very thoughtful response. Um, and so by that, I mean, you know, a one-liner answer is not going to suffice, but I would say this. Um, the short answer is, I think uh, a significant percentage of in-person or face-to-face -face visits uh, uh, are uh, can be done uh, virtually either synchronously 
uh, you know, through video or at the same time or asynchronously, you know, through, let's say, something like email, which is asynchronous or, or, or t some sort of texting or something like that. So the estimates I've seen is, you know, somewhere between 30 to 40 percent uh, of primary care visits could be done in a, in a, let's say, virtual or digital way. Uh, you know, the caution I would say here is that you know, we also saw in the pandemic as a result of people not being able to get to their doctor, um, we saw a rise in, in, in worsening of some chronic disease. And so, uh, you know, people weren't coming in, people weren't seeing, people weren't being seen appropriately enough. Um, no one's fault. It, it is. It was just a consequence. Um, you know, we, we, for one, were actually uh, early on, and I remember these conversations literally in the first, you know, week or two, we recognize this. In fact, I actually posted an article about this uh, back in March or April, uh, calling it the second wave, that if we didn't figure out a way to reach out to patients um, and, and see them, uh, and if they didn't come in, their chronic disease would get worse, and, and, and you might as a result potentially see you know, increased uh, uh, morbidities and, and, and uh, such as strokes and heart attacks and, and mortality. And so we uh, actually started combing our electronic medical record and uh, and physicians were combing their um, their schedules, looking for patients with chronic disease, uh, and particularly those who were sicker. And we began to do triage, proactive triage, and actually reach out to patients and say, "Listen, you need a visit." Um, and whether you know you come in for a visit, and we were you know we created COVID safe ways for that to happen, both in the hospital and the clinics, or we do it virtually. But we need to see you. Um, and so, so I would be, you know, again, going back to your question about 80%, I would be cautious about the percentage that can be done uh, virtually, but there's no question that a significant percentage can and should be. Uh, and, and it's, it's probably, you know, again, I would argue if, if digital health is done well and virtual health is done well, it's not just as good as, but it's probably better than an in-person visit because with digital you open up all the doors of uh, machine learning and uh, artificial intelligence, which can, you know, predict and tell you things about patients that you cannot do without it. For example, the technologies now around remote patient monitoring, you know, you can monitor patients and whereas with heart failure, let's say someone, uh, the heart is not pumping strong enough and uh, you get a backlog of fluid and pressure in your lungs and your heart and, and in your body, you get swelling of your legs. We don't know a person's going into heart failure, uh, acute heart failure, until we start to see a gain in weight, they're retaining water or they're swelling in their legs. And by that point, now we're just trying to get rid of it. Well, with some of the technology now, you, you can actually see things, for instance, like heart variability, days and days ahead of time, those things will change you that you know without that technology you would never notice and so you can proactively jump on that the, the same is true for an inch, in, instance things like falls we can predict uh people uh having falls or being prone to falls way ahead of time now and and again so i i actually think the world of digital health is going to be far far better than um the traditional way we've seen patients well the next few years we're seeing projections of one hundred twenty thousand. Uh, primary care providers that we'll be short of. If your numbers are accurate and we have 30% of about half a million PCPs that are um, now able to see people digitally, we can basically eliminate the shortage. I don't know that there is a shortage. I think we always have an efficiency problem. 
I, I completely agree with you. I, I think that I think that's exactly right. I think that uh, digital and virtual, um, it, you know, again, largely this sort of asynchronous care, uh, you know, the use of uh, chatbots, which sounds science fiction now, but but is not. Um, and um, uh, the, the use of, you know, doesn't have to be that you you have doctors uh, doing a lot of this. In fact, I, I would argue by having uh, we're using community health workers now. We're using community paramedics, uh, navigators, uh, you know, uh, care managers. Uh, you know, so there there are other people, uh, but then there's also automation. And between you know that more team-based care and between the automated care and the digital care, and quite honestly, a lot of it can be done self uh, self care. Um, and you know, I'm sure you you agree with me too that prevention is still the best thing. And uh, you know, and that is that is still that of all things, I think that is the hill um, we have yet to to really uh, point ourselves towards. You know, as as an American society, it's still very much about uh, I'm just going to live my life and you know, and then you know, take a pill or have the surgery. And um, I think that um, I think that part of what we're hoping, I think, to do, I think, as a healthcare system is to start to be much, much more proactive and preventive. In your book, Reframing Healthcare, uh, my favorite two pages talks about the difference between a patient and a consumer. Can you talk about that? I thought that was powerful medicine. I, I ask this question in, in some of the talks I give. It's, it's you know, I, I want, you know, whoever in the room, you know, and people, particularly people who have had experience with the healthcare system. Um, and again, I, I use the word system. Because uh, the one thing I want to be very, very careful about, the, the critique I have and others have is not about the people who are working in the system. I think that uh, the, the nurses and PAs and techs and, and administrators and physicians, uh, you know, and the support staff, just absolutely brilliant, passionate, committed people. I, I've, I, you know, I've got my closest friends, my wife's a doctor, my brother's a doctor. I mean, these people give their lives uh, for healthcare. Um, so it's not about the people, but the system, the system is completely, uh, dysfunctional and anyone who's been through the system understands what I'm talking about. Um, and thank God for the people who try to bend the system and work around the system and, and, and just duct tape the system because they're the ones that are saving our lives, but the system really sucks. And, um, and so I asked the question, you know, for those of you who have had any, you know, serious interaction with the healthcare system, um, how many of you like being called a patient or being like, like being treated like a patient? And, you know, no one raises their hands, right? And then ask the question, how many of you would like to be treated like a VIP valued customer? Uh, to be known as a customer and to be, and to be, you know, connected to as a customer. A VIP and everyone raises their hands, and so you know, uh, you know the the difference is stark. And actually, I wish I could pull up the page because you're right. It 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 took me a while to research this, and and the difference is stark. I mean, you know, patients patients uh, get told what to do, right? Right? Customers don't. Get, you don't tell a customer what to do. Can you imagine going in somewhere and someone telling you this is what you're going to do? No, they ask you, what do you want, sir or madam? Right? I mean, how would you like it? How can I be of service to you? You know, I mean, no one labels a customer non-compliant. That's what you that's what you call patients. You know, it's not, 
It's not, I mean, think about how insane this is. In every other industry, it is not the customer's job to be compliant. I mean, it's your job to sell them your product and your service and to keep their business, right? That's what you get paid to do. And you go out of your way to figure that out. In healthcare, we blame the customer if they don't listen to us or they don't come to us. It's absolutely insane. And so, I mean, it's just, it's beyond insane. It's just, it's ridiculous. And so, you know, I think that taking, this is why I argued in the book, and I continue to put this out, that we need to have a marketing mindset. We need to think more like marketers to say, listen, our job is to, and if you think about marketing, the principles of marketing, and I'm not talking about public, you know, PR, I'm not talking about sales, I'm, you know, or advertising, I'm talking about the essence of marketing. Marketing is about understanding your customer, okay? Marketing is about understanding their needs, their real needs, and what they value. Marketing is about figuring out how to fill those needs and meet those needs, and then figuring out if you've actually done that. That's the science and art of marketing. And you know what? I'll tell you something, Ron. When I was teaching internal medicine residents for the first 10 or 12 years of my career, that's exactly what I taught them. At their job, the profession of medicine is for you to understand your patient, understand what they need, understand what they think, connect to them, right? Understand them as a person. You take the textbook learning you've gotten, and then you have to translate that and customize it for that individual person and their family in front of you. Because anyone can spit out a textbook. That's not what the practice of medicine or the art of medicine is about. And you've got to make sure you you understand, you connect to them and you know and 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 follow through with that. That is the essence of marketing, and that's why I think we need to have a marketing mindset in healthcare. This is where I give props to direct primary care because they are indeed of that mindset. They uh, don't take anybody for granted. Everybody's a paying member because they bought a service, um, but they their whole philosophy basically is consumerism and customer orientation versus patient orientation. Um, and it's it even just indicated by the amount of time they're able to spend with the patient. So they're not in that factory medicine machine. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. So if you were sort of king for a day and could change primary care so that it was designed exactly to your wanting, as you indicated in the book, how, what would that look like? There are a number of, of things I would change, but the, the first, and I think what's really decimated primary care, and I think it's actually at the core of direct primary care, actually at the core of all good primary care is the compensation issue and the payment issue. And primary care, you know, and the vast majority of all healthcare in our country is paid for with what we call fee for service. So you get paid for what you do. So you get paid if you, you have a visit, uh, you get paid by the amount of things you code, uh, you know, you do and you code during the visit. So if you, if you do more tests, um, you know, uh, uh, th th those sorts of things. If you have more, you know, follow-up visits, if, you know, more, 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 more referrals. I mean, all of this is, is fee-for-service. Again, you get paid, for, it's piecemeal medicine, right? Um, it's just exactly like piecemeal sewing, right? Uh, you get paid by the number of, of pieces of cloth you stitch together. The, the problem with that is that, um, it, it, it leads to this sort of, uh, first of all, it leads to volume medicine. So if, if it's, you know, it leads, it leads to over, over utilization, unnecessary utilization, and it leads to volume medicine. So I, I, you know, again, from a purely financial perspective, if you, I mean, and by the way, you know, 
I may be the most um, noble, ethical, professional uh, person in the world, but you put me in a game where the only way I can get compensated is by doing more. Um, you know, over time, we're all human beings. It's you can't fight the system, right? And so, fundamentally, you know, the fee-for-service system has, in my mind, um, because it's it, it's it's not allowed primary care. And think about what primary care is. Okay, let's just go back to that first. Before primary care is is all about it's not it's not about you know someone has had something happen to them and they need you know the gallbladder's uh, infected and swollen and they need it taken out that's a different story um they've just broken a bone and they need it. that's not primary care is about prevention it's about proactive care it's about all the things we talked about before getting to know the person as a person getting to know their their, their social context getting to know all those needs it's about thinking about the person not just in front of you today but but you know, what do we need to do so that you're healthy five and ten and twenty years from now? You know, um, and and that all of that takes time. It takes time to get to know the person. It takes time to get to know their context, their family, their job. It gets time, you know, time to know what they like, what they don't like. It takes time to build trust. It and and if you put someone on a treadmill, where you know they get paid by, by volume, and the only way they can survive, and I mean survive. The only way they can make a living, the only way they can keep an office going, um, the only way that, I mean, they literally can have a business, stay in business to do medicine is by doing volume medicine. And that's what they're going to have to do. And they're going to have to see you every 10 minutes and just look at your, your chart, see what medications are missing, write those prescriptions and get you out the door. Um, and, and, and I think that is, is the wrong thing clinically. It's the wrong thing overall. For patients and it, and by the way i'll tell you i've yet to meet a primary care doctor who likes that way of practicing um primary care doctors went into it the field because that's they they wanted to spend time with patients to get to know them to build trusting relationships and to do all that preventive proactive care i was talking to you about um you know when patients come in with a problem they want to spend time and diagnose the problem correctly not send the patient off to half a dozen specialists or to uh, all these tests you know and and so I think that the fee for service uh, payment model has literally destroyed, almost completely destroyed primary care in our country. It's decimated it. Um, it's driven people away from primary care. It's driving people out of primary care. And so the one thing, uh, the one change I would make immediately, is to change how primary care is paid for and how primary care physicians, providers, and staff are paid for, from a fee for service to some sort of capitated model where you get a certain amount of money per patient per month. And, and, and that's also based on outcomes uh, such as, as you know, patient satisfaction, patient experience, trust, and, and population health outcomes. So, so that we know that you're actually doing the job of primary care in terms of it's things value -based like- Value-based care. You just, you yes. just described in a nutshell value-based care. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, if we had more time, I would want to talk to you about the CVS model, what you think of the Walmart model, and what Walgreens is doing now with Village MD, and we're we're not a time, unfortunately. So that's a whole another conversation. Is I'd like to like pluck different models in front of you and just let you, you know, go on about them and see what to see how your mind works. But um, I do have two final questions. If people want to reach you, Zev, what's the best way to find you? Uh, happy to give out my email. It's znewworth at gmail .com. Um, and um, Newworth is spelled N-E-U-W-I-R-T-H, Znewworth at gmail.com. Thank you for that. And if you could fly a banner over America saying anything, what would that message be? 
treat each other with kindness. Very nice. By the way, we took a two-hour pause so Zev could come up with the best one. We tried about 30 of them, and we had to edit them all out. So I, I Zev, we I can't to... wait to get you back again. I really love the way your mind works. I love what the reframing healthcare is all about and how you think, and um, we'll look forward to our next visit soon. Oh, thank you, Ron. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, Help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.